Hey there, friends. So glad you're here for this episode of Protect Your Noggin. It's one that I'm excited to share with you and something that I've been thinking about for a long time. Indeed, um, one of the main reasons that I ended up making a big career move was because I came to see the relationship between Jesus' teachings and power uh, in a new way, specifically a way that might be described as Jesus anarchy or Christian anarchy. Um, I know that there's a lot of people that think that is an oxymoron, that that's not possible, uh, that people uh, really react negatively when they even hear the word anarchy. It's all about one bigger question, who gets to define these terms? On this show, we're going to discuss a little bit um, about some people online wondering whether we're Christian or pagan. Uh, and uh, that word Christian and that word anarchy, uh, they're, they're very difficult for people to get their heads around sometimes. And they come to those terms with a lot of anxiety and baggage sometimes uh, because of negative experiences they might have had. But I can tell you that my whole life uh, recently has been informed by the teachings of Jesus, who I interpret uh, in an anarchist way, or more importantly, I think Jesus brings a kind of anarchy into the conversation. You don't have to think he's right. You don't have to believe that he is the son of God. But on this episode, I'm going to explain to you uh, the way in which I think Jesus fits into even a, a longer tradition that you can see in the Hebrew Bible. And so on this show, I am going to narrate my understanding of the entire biblical story from the book of Genesis to the book of Revelation, aka the Apocalypse of John. And I'm going to kind of show you a thread that I see, not just a thread, but a major uh, stream really of thinking about authority and thinking about, more importantly, liberation, freedom, happiness, but happiness and freedom that comes when we let go of this system of domination, the system of hierarchy. Now it's important to realize that really one of the things that will, uh, I think, become very apparent is if you start going down this track, you'll see that the Bible really does have these themes throughout that really are a rejection of uh, big, powerful states and the god emperors who try to run them. But as I tell the story, I also need to let you know that I am coming from a perspective that is not inerrantist. That is, there is this modern reaction to modernism in Christian churches, uh, typically fundamentalist churches, that is this emphasis on inerrancy, the idea that every factual statement in the Bible, every a claim from a prophet or an apostle is absolutely and universally uh, true for all time. Now the problem I find, and, and I think this has been a great struggle for me over 20 years of teaching within Christian higher ed, is that uh, I just don't think that's any longer workable. I don't think it's workable intellectually. I don't think it's necessary. And I think that uh, when you try to get young people to have to cram their reading of these texts into an inerrantist framework, a couple things happen. Uh, one, they have to give up on their ability to be interdisciplinary. That is, if you want to be in the sciences, if you want to understand the, the evolution of human beings, if you want to understand human psychology and human sexuality, and you want to do it with the perspective of the Bible, it will be beautifully enriched unless you need the Bible to be inerrant in that sense that you need it to be like a science textbook or a history textbook and that anything that contradicts that is just tossed out. 
in that case, all of the best new research and um, uh, writing on whatever subject. And I just don't think that can that can hold up anymore. I know last week I mentioned uh, some some very difficult issues that are going on at Concordia University in Chicago. And of course, I don't know all the ins and outs of what went down. I totally recognize that. I'm not even yet weighing in on what I think about uh, this or that person's approach to it. But I can tell you that it is entirely likely that the administration and the faculty involved all come at things with the best intentions and with a desire to be faithful. The question, of course, is um, can universities continue to exist and try to cling to this idea of inerrancy? I I just don't think so. And most importantly, um, I have personally made decisions in my life to uh, get myself out of that sort of situation because I just don't think it's tenable uh, for the decades to come. I believe that it puts universities and individual professors into a very difficult position and, and really the difficult position it puts students in unless we rethink the way in which we engage these material. And uh, before uh, we get started, I just also uh, wanted to let you know that if you are interested in understanding more about this sort of thing, um, you might want to start with Jacques Ellul, his book, Anarchy and Christianity. Let me just give you a couple quotes that he has here so that you can uh, have a better understanding of, of kind of what we're talking about when we talk about Christian anarchism. He says that this kind of anarchism rules out violent anarchism, and therefore that leaves pacifist, anti-nationalist, anti-capitalist, and moral anarchism. Now, whether you end up thinking that anarchism can work, uh, that doesn't matter so much yet. I just want you to, to see the moral compass that's involved here. Elul writes this, there remains the anarchism which acts by means of persuasion, by the creation of small groups and networks, denouncing falsehood and oppression, aiming at a true overturning of authorities of all kinds as people at the bottom speak and organize themselves. He believes that this is something found in the Bible and in the teachings of Jesus. I agree. Also, it's interesting that Elul thinks um, that, that this is, is not actually possible in an absolute sense. I want you to give yourself that permission too. You can appreciate the principles that we'll be discussing, the perspective we'll be discussing, without committing to an immediate practical approach to how you might implement this. And we can do all this and we can think about all this without committing to an immediate formula for enacting a purely anarchist utopia. In fact, that's usually what gets people in trouble. But that said, we still believe with Jesus, we hope with Jesus, that another world is possible. We're so glad you can come along and explore this with us. Even if you don't agree with us, we love you. Peace to you. Let's go. We are going to start on a little journey here that I think maybe the the last time, and it really is kind of the first time we've been able to do this, and that is for me to be able to have Sydney and Stacy here with me as we go through the uh, the way that I've been m- making sense of the biblical narrative, the Hebrew Bible and the New Testament, and uh, and that's going to be kind of a, a, an, a, an important thing for us because Stacy, we recently had a review of our podcast 
please, by the way, do rate and review the podcast. That's helpful. Give us five stars, please. Or give us your, your straight up feedback. And, and we did get somebody who uh, described us as powerful but pagan. And uh, I think what's important for us, uh, dear listener, to be able to convey to you is that we have been going through some changes in the way we've seen things. Uh, but I think this individual was assuming that we had maybe had a crisis of faith in the wake of Augie's death, right? That uh, we were responding to this calamity in our own lives by forsaking some of the, the traditional beliefs that we had had. And I, um, I just think it's important for us to say that's not really the case. Uh, as soon as I realized that my own um, perspective on the, the biblical texts was not really compatible with that of the church body that sponsored um, you know, what I was doing, I started to realize that I needed to take myself out of that context. And so that's why I uh, you know, ended up leaving church-related higher education. Um, but this is something that was in our minds uh, before Augie died. And yet at that point, when, when we did face that, that calamity, we, at least me, I came to realize that I wasn't in the mood to mess around anymore, to not be just straightforward about what I thought and, uh, what I, what I thought was not just uh, a possibility, but pretty likely in terms of how we should read these texts that are so important, the Bible, so important to so many people. And, has shaped the world. And so, uh, it, you know, there, there's that. Um, but I also would say that I don't see it as a crisis of faith. I'll put it in terms of modest Yahoo. It's not that, um, I'm no longer religious. I just let go of the doubt. He has this line. He had come from Orthodox Judaism and shaved his beard and, you know, kind of got out of a, a certain kind of religious framework, but still maintained a, a spirituality. And in his case, a Jewishness. Um, so I would say that one of the things that, that at least Stacy and I are committed to is, um, being students of Jesus more than we had before. Right. Well, and what this listener, um, is concerned with is that if we're calling ourselves Christian, he, you know, and he says that we don't uphold the second and third articles so that we're not Christian and that we are perpetuating spiritual abuse to these Christians that have already been, um, hurt by the yes. church and things like now, that. Now, this is inside by, code, by the way. By Do you sin, know what second and third article uh, refers to? Uh, the Apostles' Creed, right? So yes. we're fine on God, but yep. he says we're terrible on Jesus and the Holy Spirit. Right. Um, or we've deconstructed it to oblivion. But it, honestly, like, it's interesting because I would definitely say that um, Jesus um, is, like, one of the biggest things that we care about. The message of what Jesus was saying is so important. If there's anything I want to especially, yeah, do. Um, but I, I think that I think that for for people that would say that, and this is fair to, to listeners, they're they're saying probably not just listening to Jesus. And I think this is the this is the disconnect when people are concerned about this idea of the second article. Um, this this is uh, the, this means interpreting Jesus in a certain kind of way. Right, uh, understanding the nature of Jesus and his divinity and the, the the natures as it relates to his role in salvation and all this, and and I think uh, you'll see as we as we go through these texts that we have definitely differences from fundamentalist Christianity that will be apparent, and 
I'm not trying to argue even for our position. I just want to lay it out. I well, want to lay out how I read this. So stuff. you've been you've been studying this stuff for how many years? Well, <laughs> your I've whole been life, teaching essentially. It around twenty years, right? You know, or in that context. And so, I mean, all of as you know, as I guess as all human beings, I hope that we continue to grow as we, you know, like I think that when we stop growing, if we stop learning, then I think that then that's when we've definitely are missing out. And you have earnestly gone on a quest a to search, understand this stuff to understand all this stuff. this is what you made your whole life about it's what you've basically given your whole career everything yeah. right now of and, course not <clears throat> biblical studies or even or not even like uh, dogmatics in particular but the history of it and to understand where this comes from and where it's going right and so this is your this is your summary of what you've come to yeah. from all of all of these years of, of looking at this stuff, right? Yep. And so I could be wrong, of course. I'm sure I'm going to be wrong in many places. Usually the places I'm wrong will be uh, cases where I haven't been in a class, in a grad class recently enough. So I may be behind 10 or 20 years on the latest, you know, modern research on a particular topic. But this is this is a framework that I think will be helpful for people to at least understand, you know, when we're talking about Jesus, how does that fit in? A couple episodes ago, we were looking at Taoist philosophy and anarchy. And for this episode, I am interested in talking about anarchy as it would be understood by Jesus and the followers of Jesus. But to do that, I got to go back into the Hebrew Bible, the stuff that was informative and really important for the people that uh, were living at the time of Jesus in the first century uh, in, in the Palestine. But uh, one other thing, when people say you're not Christian, I think that's fair in the sense that I think that whatever we're about and whatever other people are about, yeah. I'm coming to see that we are of a different spirit. Right. So if you want truth in advertising, we're just going to tell you where we're coming from. But I also take great... Um, well, I find it problematic that the devil gets to steal Christian the logo. Yeah, the logo Christian, mm -hmm. right? I mean, it's kind of like um, the very idea that a a crucified uh, political prisoner, Jesus, is used eventually by the Romans. That image of Jesus, who the Romans crucified, gets put on shields and banners as they go out and have state-sponsored violence and murder. <laughs> I mean, that's, that's the atrocity of a lot of this, that these corporations get to essentially buy, uh, indirectly or directly, the things that we call Christian in the world. And I just, that, that's, that's a travesty. So if you want, you know, if you want the logo, if you want the name, maybe you can have it, but I'm not yet willing to give it up any more than I'm ready to give up the word anarchy. For this show, instead of saying, you know, I'm going to shy away from the word anarchy because it's not popular, I want to go back. Well, that's misunderstood. It's definitely misunderstood the way Christian is, right? <laughs> so I'm going to contend over the word Christian, but I'm also going to contend over the word anarchy. An opposition to authoritarianism, a rejection of the state, and a different way, an alternative to the system. Uh, in other words, I really believe that the overall message of the Bible is a, a liberation and emancipation, a spiritual emancipation. But for today, we're going to call it Jesus Anarchy. And it's against money, power, and glory. Yeah. So I think maybe that's a great way to start it. If, if you know, uh, the, the main thing that I got out of 
my reflection during a recent sabbatical was that I came to understand that Jesus is best framed, then the teachings of Jesus are best framed in light of these temptations that he's said to have in the, in the wilderness. So the devil tempts him and it's uh, three temptations, money, power, and glory, and Jesus rejects them all. And so to the extent that that's what Jesus is about, um, I think we can see that the Western churches and the Eastern Orthodox church also over its history have sometimes gotten pulled into money and power and glory, which is a reversal of the original message. Right. And sometimes it's just an aspect or two of it. Right. Um, there could be, right. you know, I don't know. Uh, there's certain churches that are far more into glory than anything else, you know? Right. Um, I and mean, some are just money makers and right. Know. Right. Anyway. And some are instruments of the state. I want to suggest that if you read it in a different way, the Bible is incredibly perceptive and is true and is true. Whether you believe in God or not is true. Whether you want to look at the, the historical background to the, let's say the Exodus we'll talk about in a second, but at a very fundamental level, if it's talking about a political and theological perspective on the world, the Bible brings some deep truth. It is also not always entirely consistent. This is something that's very important. There are these different angles on things. And I think we find this in any good spiritual tradition. Um, for instance, in, in Buddhism, you, you will find that sometimes there is talk about nothingness uh, and detachment and the idea that, that suffering is an illusion. On the other hand, there's a way of saying, oh no, this is very real. Let's be very present in this physical body in this world. And they're both true at the same time. They're these kind of opposites that are both part of the, the story. So um, if, if you wouldn't mind, Sydney, um, there are two very, very short texts, just to kind of illustrate the way in which the, the Bible is going to see the same event from a, of a slightly different perspective. The first is First Chronicles 21.1. Satan rose up against Israel and incited David to take a census of Israel. Now, as a, as a Jesus anarchist, I like this text because it's basically saying when David goes and does his statist stuff, right, when he's acting like a, a state, um, he is doing this under the influence of Satan, <laughs> right? Yeah, Satan rose up. Yep. But there's another text, 2 Samuel 24, 1. Again, the anger of the Lord burned against Israel, and he incited David against them, saying, go and take a census of Israel and Judah. So the real key here is in, in Chronicles, in 1 Chronicles, David takes a census because Satan inspires him to do this. In Samuel... The Lord, Yahweh, is, is going the, to get him to do this. The anger of the Lord. Yeah, that's true. Uh, and, and maybe you could say, okay, that's the same thing. The anger of the Lord and Satan are the same thing. But they're just slightly different perspectives. Mm -hmm. and, and, and maybe this is just one of many. But ultimately, what, what people that have read through the Old Testament for the first time get surprised by is that the stories are repeated. So there's Samuel and Kings, and then there's these Chronicles. Now, Samuel and Kings are positive on the monarchy, and they ignore the Bathsheba story. Bathsheba is where, is where David sees a woman and basically coerces her into a sexual relationship, kind of takes her away from her husband. That's a really bad thing that Kings do. And then sends her husband out to be the 
front line of yeah and causes his death mm-hmm. and and so that's a horrible horrible thing and sometimes it's left out and sometimes it's in and it has to do with and it's often read that it or told I, I hear it that it was Bathsheba's fault and in mm-hmm. fundamentalist circles the preachers have said that yeah I've so heard. it's it's it, it she tempted David yes. and then this is what happened <laughs> that's Blame why the woman you, yep always. well she was showering and he could yeah. he could peek at her I guess. Sar bathing on the roof. Yeah, we. Uh, this is a big problem, right? Where you, especially in, in some of these circles where we then say, well, you're wearing the wrong clothes. You're asking for it. Yeah. And, but see, look how, look how fundamentally problematic that is right there and how it's embedded within this question of whether or not we should trust the kings, whether we should trust kings in general is a, a big piece of it. But that's skipping ahead. That's skipping to a Sorry. time in... No, no, no. I'm, I, I, I put it... No, I put it to... I'm saying I'm, I'm skipping ahead to the time of the monarchy, but I want to go back before that, before there were kings in Israel. I want to go back to the beginning. In the beginning, God created the heavens and the earth. Now, what's going on with this? Well, now I'm getting rolling, okay? So now we're getting rolling. Once upon a time... There was this primordial ball of, of water, basically, that the Ruach, the spirit of God, the feminine spirit of God is incubating. And the reason this is important is because an alternative version to the creation of the world in the, in the Babylonian framework is that the sea is, is seething, it's bubbling up, and there's this female deity, this female dragon goddess named Tiamat. And she represents hysteria. She represents the womb. She represents menstruation. She represents chaos. She's a chaos dragon. And this male god, Marduk, has to come in and kill her to create peace in the world. And then the world is kind of created out of the cutting up of her body. So this is what the... um, the, the writer Rene Girard says is the myth of primal violence, that there is this Western myth that says the way that we have safety and peace is by suppressing women and the feminine principle and certainly the mother deities, the female deities, they have to go. And then there's a strong male deity. And this deity, in this case, Marduk, he makes babies with human women And those babies are appointed as kings. So in the ancient Near East, Pharaoh thought he was a god. And the the Near Eastern kings, they said that they were gods. And just like Marduk had to commit violence to create civilization, kings need to commit violence to maintain civilization. Here's the biblical question. As you go back, the counter-narrative to that Tiamat and Marduk story is this biblical story that says instead of the the female principle being this chaos dragon, Ruach, the Holy Spirit maybe, if you will, is a motherly nurturing influence. And so as God creates the world, it's not a problem. God creates the world and it's good. He says it's good. And God creates the world, interestingly, by creating the spaces in the first three days, and then filling the spaces with governors, essentially. So uh, the sun and the moon come a few days after the creation of light and darkness, right. the separation of day and night. So it's a, it's a very much kind of like the Tao Te Ching. It's, a, it's almost a, a philosophical way of seeing 
this text or seeing creation. It's the separation into yin and yang, up and down. It's just the world being created. Mm -hmm. Now, that's interesting enough, but I think what's more interesting, and this is the part where I think it's absolutely true, is the fall. So you go to the fall and you see that Adam and Eve are placed in this garden and they live just like hunter-gatherers. They live in this harmony between each other and there's a harmony between the spiritual world, God and themselves. They are in harmony with nature. Everything's in balance. And to me, this is absolutely true if you go to the idea that I think you can see a little bit of in, in the work of Josh Swamidas about, uh, he talks about this in his book, The Genealogical Adam and Eve, that it's possible that you could have some kind of narrative starting, but uh, a great deal of time after humans have evolved and have been living on the earth. There are people living as hunter and gatherer societies all around. What is the fall? If you read the fall, this is how I read the fall, then Adam and Eve decide they are going to become like gods and they're going to create civilization. So they're going to move out of harmony with nature and they're going to create civilization and civilization is sin. That's the problem. This hierarchy, the domination system, power, glory, money, all of that, uh, and I would include the, the agricultural revolution, all of that is what corrupts all the human beings on the earth. In other words, let's just say there were a couple people that decided that they were going to go out and uh, they were going to start tilling and they're going to start creating civilization. Let's call them Adam and Eve. The problem with sin, sin being this idea of going off course, is that they are going to literally then be confronted with all of these other people around uh, the world largely, you're going to say sparsely populated, you're going to go around and you're going to say, what are we going to do with them? We're going to draw them into civilization. We're going to take them out of their paradise and force them to be a part of this domination system that's being created. So in a very real way, whether you want to say there's a literal Adam and Eve or not, this idea of sin and the fall is, is kind of reflected in the Bible. And what happens? Adam, he is cursed after he, after he disobeys God, eats the, eats the fruit. Do you remember what the curse is? That he will have to um, uh, till the land. Yeah, he has to work. Work. He has to labor after the sweat of his brow. And then what happens to Eve? She's going to have pain in childbirth. So a lot of myths in the ancient world are trying to explain why is it that we have the world as it is? You know, the big question for women is why is childbirth so dangerous and painful? That's kind of reasonably easy mm -hmm. enough. The other question is, why am I a wage slave? Right. Why is my father a wage slave? Why has everybody I've known been a wage slave? Why is my only hope to be a wage slave in civilization? And so in that sense, that's perfectly fitting. Then you get Cain and Abel. Cain and Abel both present offerings to God. Cain's offering is rejected. Abel's offering is good. Does anybody know, do you know what the difference was between their offerings? So one was the the meat and the other was the, I'll say like the... Grains. Yeah, the grains. Yeah. Like I was going to say the vegetables. So but yeah, this is weird. Cain, uh, Cain has the grains. Mm -hmm. He offers the grain. And Abel offers a sacrificial animal. Mm -hmm. So that's interesting. But 
Can you think, like, what would well, be the re- relationship between these and God's approval or disapproval? So the grain is civilization because you have to stay put and have a farm. It's the agricultural revolution, yeah. Right. And then, then the other is more of, like, the herding method where you're, you're wandering and, um, you know. Semi-nomadic. So, yeah, with the animals. Yeah, so it's a pastoral nomadic society. So the way I see this is the absolute ideal for human happiness and I think anthropologists have established this, sociologists have been able to operationally define happiness and check in on this. Hunter-gatherers tend to be happier than the rest of us running in the rat race. Well, and the hunter and, hunters and gatherers can take make use of what's like seasonally appropriate. So without, you know, exhausting what yes. you're doing to the, the right. earth where if you're farming, you have to, you're going to like overwork land. You're going to have to, you know, switch out, which which land you're actually growing stuff on, right? And it gets tired. And so, and it can, monoculture. it can artificially bump up a, a certain crop or a certain thing. So you have a whole lot more than what's necessary sometimes at a certain time, one, one particular thing, rather than just seeing what happens to be just growing at that time of year. Right. So if you have more of a diverse diet, you're going to live longer, you're going to be healthier, you're not going to have as much tooth, tooth problems and so forth. So... Cain represents, I think, very clearly the agricultural side of things, the civilization side of things. And Abel represents the second best, which was pastoral. So the best, again, hunter-gatherer. The second best, semi-nomadic. You can still garden. You can still grow things. But what we're talking about here with Cain, the representation of this, this massive farming system where, where the men are off essentially as wage slaves or actual slaves and the women are breeders at home. That world didn't have to be. If you just start with the Bible there, that's a huge insight. Whereas the Babylonians are saying, this is how it has to be if you don't want to descend into chaos. The biblical text is suggesting that there's a better way that we could live. Now, what gets in the way? Then we get this weird text in, um, in uh, Genesis 6, 1 through 4, this, this set of beings called the Beneha Elohim, the sons of the heavens, the sons of gods or sons of God. The Beneha Elohim have sex with human women and they create the Nephilim, the fallen ones. These are like these, these renowned men of old. These are, you know, these myth, mythical creatures that you see in all the world's literature, right? You have these semi-divine beings. You got the stuff in Ovid's Metamorphosis. And um, these then becomes, uh, these Nephilim become Near Eastern God Kings. Now, it's interesting to me, this is as a side note, that conservative Christians tend to say that the Nephilim were, uh, were just human people. They were, they, were, they were kings, but they were not semi-divine. But every you know, mainstream scholar that looks at it says this is very clearly, and it really is very clearly, this image of semi-divine beings, angelic beings having babies with women. We can't accept that in fundamentalist inerrant circles, see how interesting this is. If you believe that the Bible's inerrant and you read that, then you have to say that, that it happened. And that's hard for us to imagine that human women were able to have babies with, with angelic beings. That seems weird. Interestingly, I've actually met fundamentalists who say that's not scientific, mm-hmm. but they also believe in other things that, that like 
wouldn't be seen as, as scientific. This seems actually easier to imagine, mm-hmm. <laughs> you yeah, know, right. an alien human hybrid. So what does God do? Um, then this God, the God of uh, this narrative then uh, is going to, is going to wipe out everybody, right? So there's a flood to get rid of these giant creatures and, and, and all of the corruption. So, so God, in a sense, judge, judges civilization with climate catastrophe or something. Um, but going back to kind of the foundational understanding of these, these kings, one of the things that happens in Genesis, the book of Genesis, is this Tower of Babel. And the Tower of Babel sounds like a cute little thing, or we think of it as a cute little thing in our Sunday school books or our picture Bibles. But it, it makes a lot of sense if you go back to the region, you think about um, these ziggurats that exist all around the, the ancient Near East, but interestingly also can be found in Mesoamerica. But the ziggurats, uh, you might say, represent the place where God is met or the gods are met, and that's where you have the God kings. Uh, so if you think about the Tower of Babel, one of the things that's interesting about that is the, is the name is interesting itself, uh, Bob L, L being the sky god L, as in, you know, Elohim. Mm-hmm. Uh, Bob is the house or the gate. So Babel means the house or the gate of God. And so these ziggurats were temples where you would go up the stairway to heaven and essentially converse with the gods. And who's going to be your intermediary? The king. So if I'm looking at Jesus' anarchy, you see that the whole Bible starts out in the context of like this kind of death star, if you will, or you could think in Lord of the Rings terms, the, the, the eye of Sauron or something. And the good people of God are trying to escape from this tyrant or, or the, the pattern of tyranny that goes on and on. So the person that is the, the foundational figure for Jews, Muslims, and Christians is Abraham. And he's called Abram at first, but we'll just call him Abraham. Abraham is considered righteous. Why is he considered righteous? Because he has faith. Now for us growing up as Christians, Stacey, we, we think, oh, this means believing that God exists, mm-hmm. right? Or believing in some religion. So Abraham, God likes Abraham because he's gullible. That's mm-hmm. how I learned it. Or Ga- yeah. Abraham is a good guy because he believes things that are hard to believe that somebody told him. Right. No. Abraham hears the call of God to get out of the city. Now, why does this matter? Because the city's evil. The city is dominating. It is sexist. It is cruel. It is bad for the environment. And it believes in these God kings, these tyrants, these these powerful men. So Abraham leaving that is kind of like, in, in many ways, what we've experienced letting go of some of the support networks and structures that we've let go of in, in the last year or so. It's terrifying. Yes. But it is an act of faith. Mm-hmm. It is, I want to go back to what I said at the top <laughs> of the show. We didn't lose our faith. We got our, we got our reserve, we, our resolve. Right. You know, we, we decided to, to, to not mess around anymore. Right. But it's scary. It and it's been scary coming Really out. scary. Fun, exciting. But so that's what he does. So Abraham says, okay, we're going to leave Babylon, we're going to leave, in his case, Ur of the Chaldees, and we're going to go set out and live as pastoral herdsmen, uh, semi-nomadic 
tribal people. And that this is the better way and that not living underneath these uh, emperors or, or God kings is really important. So then you keep going. And this is a, a, terrible, a terrible thing that happens in the history of interpretation. Um, you know, the very word that people use to describe uh, homosexuality is sodomy, you know, and it goes back to this idea of Sodom and Gomorrah in the Bible, but that's a misreading of what's going on. Sodom and Gomorrah is just a reaffirmation that the city underneath a God King is a bad place to be. Now today, I think living in a city can be sometimes the most ethical because you can walk instead of driving all the place. There's other things, but in these days, the city was a place of wickedness because it was a place of domination and power. And it often thrived on basically the, the labor of the people yes. that were slaves or... Right. So it comes with, yeah, you can have all these nice things, but it's going to come with um, subjugation of human beings. Right. And anyway, so Sodom, the problem with Sodom is that it is one of these cities, but also um, there are these two angels that show up on the scene and the town's dudes want to rape them. That's the basic story. And so the problem about, uh, the problem with Sodom is not homosexuality. The problem is rape mm. and non-consensual sex. And, you know, at, and, and in that story, you can see violence, sexual violence and the corruption. And so then what's the point? You know, Abraham says, hey, Lot, you got to get your family out of here. So Lot, uh, Abraham and Lot, uh, they leave and then these cities are destroyed by God's wrath um, and, and so forth. But the, the key then is, if we just focus in on it, the good plan was to be in the garden, then civilization was created. That was no good. And then uh, Sodom and Gomorrah represent another example of how things get out of hand when you let money, power, and glory run amok. So Abraham brings his family out. You got Abraham... Isaac, and then you got Jacob. Now, Jacob is interesting because Jacob takes a nap on, the, uh, on, the, on the, the ground and he sees in the sky what we call Jacob's ladder. Um, but Jacob's ladder is best understood, I think, as an example of a, a ziggurat that he sees. But instead of going up and down it himself, the angels come down and attend to him. In other words, Jacob's ladder at Bethel, this vision that he has, is a reversal of religion. Instead of trying to go ascend up to the top of a mountain in glory and power, uh, the spiritual world comes to him, reaches down to him in this mystical kind of grace. What's interesting, though, is Jacob's ladder is called Bethel, which is a, you know, basically just another dialect of saying Babel. Babel is the house or gate of God. Bethel is the house or gate of God, but the difference is what's the door and where's the door and, and where are people going? So that's great. Jacob, you got Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob, but then Jacob has all these kids, these sons, and the youngest son, Joseph, is his favorite. And the other brothers, they don't like this guy, Joseph, so they sell him into slavery and he ends up in Egypt. Egypt. Now this is great because watch the story now. God's people are supposed to get out of empire. They're supposed to get out of this, the beast, mm -hmm. civilization. They do for a while, but why do they go to Egypt? 
Because it was a famine and they needed food. Right. So we become enamored with money, power, and glory when we don't have it. When we're feeling weak and helpless, this is why, you know, uh, fascists tend to rise to power when people are feeling weak and, and hopeless. So they were hoping to get some food from the storehouses of the pharaoh, right? See. So then... When they get down there, eventually the idea is that there are these people that are an underclass of human beings that had come to Egypt and they did this to survive, but now they become servants, slaves, and oppressed people within the community. Now, there is not consensus amongst scholars uh, about the historical nature of the Exodus. The Exodus is where then Moses leads the people out of Egypt. However, I think most good scholars agree that it has a kernel of historical truth. You got these people who might not even have been a distinct ethnic group, but they're all the people kind of living together in, in the context of having been displaced and brought to Egypt. But if you're Jewish, the formative story, the big story is the Passover and the exodus, and the leaving of an oppressive system. That's the whole story. That's why the, you know, uh, American slaves really drew from the stories of Moses uh, for inspiration, for exodus out of oppression, out of empire, out of civilization. And again, for Jesus anarchists, you can have society. You should have society. You should have culture. You should have community, but that's different from civilization. Civilization referring to these big God King cities. And what's the alternative? Once Moses pulls them out or, you know, they, they are led out of Egypt. They operate as 12 tribes and they all camp out around a tabernacle. Now this is very much to me, uh, an image that would make sense in, in terms of uh, some kind of anarchist framework. Anarchists don't believe in no order. They don't believe in chaos. They believe in direct democracy and personal order. So the idea that you have these federated tribes uh, all surrounding a, a concept, but not having a hierarchical leadership is a really interesting perspective. It's a really interesting way of thinking about society, and it's different from the way that the Egyptians and the Babylonians would have seen it. So I think that's, that's a really important piece of it. Now, there is a problem in the Bible that we need to face, and that is there is a lot of uh, family hierarchy that shows up. Dad's important. Women are breeders. It's, it's, it's there. Mm -hmm. So I'm not suggesting that the that the people in the Hebrew Bible represent examples of families that are totally liberated. It's just simply not that way. Mm -hmm. And I think if we try to take the sexism out of the Bible, it's not helpful because it's there. So right. if, you, if you try to like, you know, gloss over it, then you're going to have implicit sexism that's going to affect the way you, you know, see things. Um, but it's there. And what, why is it there? Because that's just pretty much the world of the ancient Near East. There's not really another option. Now, if you're an inerrantist, and this is where we get into trouble with American religious communities today, we say, oh, you know, thousands of years ago in the ancient Near East, women were second-class citizens, and therefore they have to be today. 
that comes out of inerrancy. Right. The idea that we've just got to be stuck with the way that they saw the world, and I just don't see that as necessary. There's another problem in the in the in the Bible, uh, and that is you've got the people of Israel going in and committing genocide against the people, the Canaanites, mm. and um, that's a real problem yeah. because that doesn't seem very um, anarchist. That doesn't seem very peaceful and loving. Um, there's a couple things there that I can't get into all of it. But one is if you want to look into the, the work of Pete Enns, Pete Enns basically uh, brings to a more popular level this perspective of a lot of historians that the, uh, the ancient Israelites didn't actually commit all these acts of violence that are in the Bible. It's hard to figure out why they would have said that other than I think they were in a world of, of exile. They were in a world of, of being oppressed. And so they wanted to say, we, we used to be butt kickers too, mm-hmm. <laughs> you know? Mm-hmm. Um, but in any case, they do go in and uh, the people of Israel go into this land, the land flowing with mil- milk and honey. And um, when they do, they don't go in with a king. They go in with the judges. And this is also very resonant, I think, with uh, anarchism in that it reflects this idea that you could have somebody who's wise and they have authority. And they have authority because we all just give them authority. Mm-hmm. Um, last night we went to uh, see some jazz. I really dug it. It was, it was, it was fun. Sydney, what would you say, how would you explain kind of the, the nature of this show? Um, so basically... They had a pretty wide range of ages, everyone from, like, teenagers to people who have probably been playing for over 30 years. And, um, yeah, it was a very nice environment. They had um, opportunities for different musicians to come in, and I thought it was a fun, relaxing space. It's People nice. just come in and jam. Yeah, so upright bass. Oh yeah. Yeah, uh, it was it was really neat to see. Um, they they opened up the ability for audience members to come and jam with you know various mm. other players and mixing up who's playing what instruments and things. Right. And and what I loved to see was the more uh, experienced pl- uh, players or you know band members shepherding along, yes. if you will, and mentoring. It was the, a beautiful um, the younger players thing to see. Yesterday would have been my seven year anniversary, so it was kind of a hard day. So it was yeah. nice to go see some quiet, relaxing jazz. And and the the nice thing about jazz is it doesn't deny, you know, the emotion pain. Yeah. But it also plays. It also yeah. dances in a mm-hmm. way and it's not restricted. So this right. is the reason I want to bring it up is that that I think in, in thinking about spiritual anarchy, you know, uh, jazz is very much a um, a way of kind of like hearing what that would look like. Mm-hmm. And, and this is, and this is really where I'm, where I'm going with it is you can't just do anything. Right. You know, you like, if you can't, you can't just show up with your, with your guitar or bass and just play any old thing you want in any key. And um, so there's a, there's a, a lot of freedom, but there's also some kind of structure, to structure that to it. But now here's the key. When I think about the judges. Um, and you have to know what you're doing in order Yes. To tweak with, yeah, you know. jazz is one of the hardest kinds of music to play. 
because you have to understand the rules to break the rules mm -hmm. or to at least, you know, um, it's a lot of improvisation. Yes. And so, yeah, so, so that's, that's what the time of the judges was. Now, when we, when we were at the show though, if the young kid was playing when he wasn't supposed to play, who, who was making a signal to stop him? The seasoned veterans that had authority, right. but their authority wasn't that they were the boss mm -hmm. or that they were a professor or the only ones that could play or they were going to give them a job or they were the only ones who had the official title of musician. No, they gave them authority because they had authority mm -hmm. and their authority came from their wisdom, not their power and domination. Right. right. And so I think that to me is what the, the, the judges as an ideal in the Bible was about. It's a period of time when it says everybody did what was right in their own eyes. Now, when we were growing up, Stacy, that was seen to be very bad. You shouldn't do what's right in your eyes. Right. You should do what's right in God's eyes. And I'm going to be the one to tell you what that is. Yes. Christian anarchists tend to say that judges, when judges says everyone did what was right in his own eyes, they emphasize everyone did what was right because they internalized these values. They internalized the virtues. They didn't wait for the laws right. to tell them what was right and wrong. They didn't wait for the police. They right. just did what was right and wrong. And if there was a dispute, if they needed to resolve something, uh, 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 if they needed to, um, you know, a conflict resolute, <laughs> mm -hmm. um, if they needed a conflict resolution, you go to a judge, right? That's great. Now, uh, before I pass on from the, the, the question of jazz, um, I uh, will post a link to this, but my favorite record is uh, surprisingly here, a compilation. Uh, I, I, right now, my favorite record to play, um, and it is Spiritual Jazz Volume 12, Esoteric, modal, and progressive jazz from the Impulse label, 1962 to 75. I just, I love this. There's John Coltrane, of course, on it. Uh, but there are uh, a lot of other folks that are, are really cool. Pharaoh Sanders, Alice Coltrane, Archie Shep. Anyway, check this out and you can, you can uh, get a, th it's three discs here. Three uh, vinyl discs. I love it. Uh, in any case, that's, that's some spiritual jazz. Now, did the judges always pull it off? Uh, no, you see that there's there's problems from time to time, and people start to get nervous. So then the the story, if you you follow the narrative of the Bible, you then get to this time where you get this guy Samuel, this prophet Samuel, and Samuel is uh, working with the people, and the people all say, "We really want a king like these other countries. These other places have kings. We want a government like that. We want a state." And Samuel begs them not to. So, Sydney, would you read? This is 1 Samuel 8, 10 through 22. This is in the Bible. This is what at least one Bible verse has to say about states, governments, and kings. Samuel told all the words of the Lord to the people who were asking him for a king. He said, this is what the king who will reign over you will claim as his rights. He will take your sons and make them serve with his chariots and horses, and they will run in front of his chariots. Some he will assign to be commanders of thousands and commanders of fifties, and others to plow his ground and reap his harvest, and still others to make weapons of war and equipment for his chariots. He will take your daughters to be perfumers and cooks and bakers. He will take the best of your fields and vineyards and olive groves and give them to his attendants. He will take a tenth of your grain and of your vintage and give it to his officials and attendants. 
your male and female servants, and the best of your cattle and donkeys he will take for his own use. He will take a tenth of your flocks, and you yourselves will become his slaves. When that day comes, you will cry out for relief from the king you have chosen, but the Lord will not answer you in that day. But the people refused to listen to Samuel. No, they said, we want a king over us. Then we will be like all the other nations, with a king to lead us and to go out before us and fight our battles. So you don't have to believe that the Bible is historically accurate for you to see that there is something very important going on here with respect to the way we're supposed to view governments and kings. Mm -hmm. Here, if, if you want to say, hey, I believe the Bible, Mallinson doesn't, I'm like, all right, well, which part of it? Because if you believe in, in authoritarian governments and I don't, and you say, you know, somebody was saying online, oh, these guys aren't Christians, they're anarchists, right? Mm -hmm. um, interesting to me, if a Christian is somebody who follows this tra trajectory in the Bible, the trajectory of freedom as opposed to oppression, uh, opposition to these hierarchical systems, then... Uh, I, I think that uh, we've got things backwards. We've right. reversed it. So, I mean, this is obviously why I think partly why kings during the Reformation era were not very excited for people to have Wycliffe's translation, Tyndale's translation, ger the German translation of Luther in the hands of the average person. Because shortly after the Reformation, even though the reformers themselves, by the way, didn't want to um, oppose magistrates and kings, the average person and often peasants who were oppressed would read this and say, oh, yeah, this is a book about liberation. Mm -hmm. So you wonder, why is it that people would, would, be, would be arrested for giving out Bibles in, in the language of the people. Why would you do that? Because partly kings don't want to have this question raised. Wait a minute, aren't kings just bad? And what are they going to do? They're going to conscript your kids, the boys, into the wars that they fight. And the women are basically going to become part of their harem. This is the violence that governments have always been, been operating with. So at least at that point, I would say you have a very, very clear indication of a biblical anarchy, of an anarchy that says... We don't have archons. We don't have overlords. Um, but, of course, they do. And so they get excited about the king. And, of course, then you have David and Solomon. David and Solomon are, in one sense, seen as these you know, great kings in the Bible, at least in some of the texts. But we've already mentioned that, that David has a guy killed, and he takes his wife in this adulterous way. And Solomon... Solomon has so many wives. Some of his wives uh, have, have set up altars for human sacrifice, and he's kind of cool with that too. So Solomon does the very worst thing that you could possibly do and allow this, this human sacrifice of babies that's this pagan influence, and these were the good ones. There's only really like five kings that even the Bible admits are, are okay, you know. Um, and, and so the, the kings in general... Are, are not seen as good. And so ultimately, because of the corruption of the people, the Bible says they're taken into exile, right? So they're back out of empowerment. And as they're going into exile, you have these groups known as the prophets. And the prophets, uh, like, uh, you know, uh, Micah and Amos, these are people who are speaking in ways that I would say very much resemble radical thought today, certainly they're the kind of texts that Jesus anarchists are going to resonate with. So I think the most important 
is is Micah six eight. But let's read all of uh, Micah six one through fourteen, so we can kind of get the the context. Or actually, this is Micah six verses six through fourteen. With what shall I come before the Lord and bow down before the exalted God? Shall I come before him with burnt offerings, with calves a year old? Will the Lord be pleased with thousands of rams, with ten thousand rivers of olive oil? Shall I offer my firstborn for my transgression, the fruit of my body for the sin of my soul? I just got to pause there for a second. That is a really interesting verse because he's saying, should I sacrifice my oldest son? Uh, it's it's something that people don't think about. Now, okay. I think I think what he's saying is, is that what I should do? In other words, there's all these rich people that are doing these wicked things, but they say, I'm forgiven because I've, you know, I've got these other religious things that I do that, that make it so that I'm okay. Mm-hmm. Instead of actually being a good person, I'm going to be a religious person right. and that's going to cover over this. But he's basically, I think the implication is no, those aren't going to solve his problems giving a bunch of olive oil or sacrificing his own child, that's not going to be enough. He has shown to you, O mortal, what is good, and what does the Lord require of you? To act justly and to love mercy and to walk humbly with your God. That's the most important passage, justice and mercy. Two things that, you know, Jesus anarchists say, yeah, of course, that's, that's the most important, but notice their virtues. The thing that you're supposed to do isn't follow a bunch of, legalistic rules the idea is no 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 like get your hearts right you act justly and then you love mercy yeah verse nine listen the lord is calling to the city and to fear your name is wisdom heed the rod and the one who appointed it am i still to forget your ill-gotten treasures you wicked house and the short and the short ephah which is accursed Shall I acquit someone with dishonest scales, with a bag of false weights? Your rich people are violent, your inhabitants are liars, and their tongues speak deceitfully. Therefore, I have begun to destroy you, to ruin you because of your sins. You will eat but not be satisfied. Your stomach will still... So what's he saying? The Bible is saying these rich people... These wealthy exploiters and oppressors, they are the problem. What you're supposed to do, if, if you want to know what the true spirituality is for Micah, is justice and mercy. He's kind of brushing off these, these kind of ritual aspects that people think that's enough to be righteous. I'm righteous because I'm doing the religious stuff. And he's saying, no, you're empty and you're empty because you're, you're wealthy. I mean, that's, that, that's something you're going to see over and over. There's a lot of anti-wealthiness uh, in this. And this doesn't mean you shouldn't be, you know, a, a good saver and frugal and all this. And, you know, it's saying that the, the exploiters of the world, they're the problem. The kings of the world, they're kind of the problem, right? Money, power, and glory. Well, and, the problem. Says, and you will eat and not be satisfied. Uh, there, I mean, there's so many <laughs> times where even like with what people that win the lottery or whatever proof that financial situation changes, you have all this money and you're still not happy. All the, you know, people that, you know, celebrities and things like that, or you finally arrive right to whatever it is that, and then they realize like that's not 
enough. It doesn't fill that. I love hole. the pin on your jacket that says some people are so poor, all they have is money. <laughs> yeah, it's a good yeah. one. Yeah. So, you know, you could see this coming up over and over. One of the other examples that's really interesting is the story of Esther. Uh, Esther, who has to go into the presence of the king. Why is she worried? Because she's not somebody who's empowered and free. She's going to go have to have sex with this guy because she's part of, you know, the captured people. Esther goes in and she's protecting her people from the wicked who want to snuff them out. And so really, then, you you know, you get to see this where even to this day, it's, it's just, it's so strange, anti-Semitism. But there's this constant desire of people to crush the people of Israel, to, cr- to crush um, Jews all around the world. And, and yet there's this constant struggle to maintain that autonomy. And I think one of the reasons, there's a lot of, you know, stuff. We could do a whole, another show on kind of why uh, anti-Semitism comes to, to be in the Western European context. But I think one of the main factors is that maybe not all Jews are anarchists, but they have the same problem that anarchists have. And that is governments don't like it when you're not playing by their rules. So when Jewish communities in exile would go to communities in Europe, they would be in but out. They wouldn't be operating within the main system. And sometimes they didn't want to be in the system. Mm -hmm. But by being separate, that makes people uncomfortable. And so you become uh, a target of violence and, and hate because you're different. The Romani gypsies, same thing. Their problem is they're living outside of the system. People don't like that. People get really up, upset when you do that. And in, in fact, we've seen this as we've traveled around in a van or in a truck camper. The extent to which we enter into spaces where we are seen as not playing ball, mm-hmm. um, that's where we get most of the negativity. I think it's very uncomfortable. So um, then you also have uh, the book of Job. Job as an ideological critique, I think is very important. And that is this idea that no, 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 no. The world isn't always the way it's supposed to be. Good things happen to bad people and good people. Bad things happen to good people and bad people. And that there is the sense in which religious folks want to always explain it. Job suffers because he did something wrong. But the book of Job is kind of saying, no, just because the world is a certain way, doesn't mean that's that's how it's supposed to be. And or that th- it's punishment. Or that it's punishment. And so that is really important to note because it's saying that another world is possible. Another world is possible in terms of the arrangements we would have in, in terms of our political social structures uh, and also just understanding that, you know, things like manifest destiny in America, the idea of manifest destiny is, look, the European people are taking over the continent. That must be what God wants because God knows the future. So everything Tom that's going to happen. Yeah, Tom Snyder, uh, 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 Todd Snyder. Um, oh, yes. Yeah, Todd. very important. Uh, God gave me all this. All right, so now let's get to the New Testament. I'm making some headway. We get to the New Testament and what do you have? First of all, it's really weird. You've got Jesus is attended um, not even by uh, the people that are supposed to know that he's the Messiah, but by these other people, the Magi, these Persian um, sages that are coming. There is debate amongst historians about whether or not there was actually a census. Again, we don't care for our purposes right now. 
whether it's uh, historically factual or not. The, the fact is, here it's mentioned, and what's going on is something that is very statist, right? States and governments need to have a census so that they can know how to tax you, they can know how many people they can get when they're fighting their wars. Right. Well, so, yeah, so they know who's living in their, their kingdom. So Jesus is born. He's born in these humble circumstances. He is not a king in the, in the world's sense. So... That's an important by itself. Who is this king? It's not Herod. It's not the people appointed by the establishment, the people who are compromising with Rome. It is rather uh, somebody who the shepherds, lowly people, are going to acknowledge, right? Yes. Shepherds are more like Abraham, the semi-nomadic crew, the less sophisticated Right. And, uh, and Herod is the bad guy. Right. Herod kills a bunch of babies. You know, king's bad. The shepherd's good. Now, there's not a lot in the New Testament about the life of Jesus up until his public ministry. So he's kind of he's kind of just hanging out, doing his thing, living his life, you know. But when he then enters into kind of the public square, he does so with this. A very important event called the triumphal entry. The triumphal entry is where, um, you know, we we call this Palm Sunday. Uh, Jesus walks into Jerusalem and he comes in riding on a donkey. Now he's doing this at a very politically dangerous point in uh, the calendar. And so Pontius Pilate, the Roman governor, is coming into town. And what's going on? This is a holiday. Passover is a holiday that commemorates the Passover. Uh is recounting to the family every year the story of the Exodus. Moses is leading the people of Israel out. And so this is the most important story you're telling to every generation. But when you tell this story, you're telling it now in a time when you are now again under an occupying regime, right? So that's what makes it dangerous. It's one thing to tell the story of how you used to be enslaved in Egypt and now you're free. Mm-hmm. But now what they're saying is we used to be enslaved in Egypt and now we're, we're under the oppressive system of the Romans. So he comes in. So Jesus comes in into that politically volatile situation where people are thinking about maybe we need to overthrow the chains or, you know, or they're thinking maybe we need to get out from under um, the domination system of Rome, the Roman beast. And, and so Jesus is a politically dangerous figure. There's no doubt about it. And the fact that he goes in the way he does, I think indicates very clearly that Jesus has a very overtly political message. Because what he's doing is, while, while the Roman governor is coming in to show Rome is in charge, and he's coming in on a war horse with all of the fanfare that... Uh, that a government person is going to bring, right? Jesus does so in humility, but it is it is an act of political theater. Right. So he was born in a manger. He's you know way lowly from the very beginning, right? And now he's coming in on a donkey. He comes from the boondocks. He's up from Galilee. He comes down to Jerusalem, and and he comes in and he says, "All right, I'm I'm going to do this. I'm coming in." And what does he do? What's his main point? We think of it, you know, oh, Jesus does all these different things. But the main thing he does when he gets to Jerusalem. He goes over and he 
he cleanses the temple. He smashes it up. He he turns over the money changers' tables. He's, he he's getting mad at them for what they've done to his father's house. He creates these whips out of the cords, and he just drives out all the animals, and and he creates a big uh, a big event. This is almost certainly historically uh, true. Uh, whatever different takes people had on Jesus. Was he more mystical? Was he more practical? Doesn't matter. Uh, this is something that sent, you know, shockwaves throughout the city. That there was this dude who came in and he did this act of vandalism, mm-hmm. right? This would have made the news. This would have been, you know, President Trump would say, hey, look, what are they doing? These anarchists in Jerusalem, we got to send in some vans and crack down on them. <laughs> um, but like, that's what happened. Now, yeah. there's no internet, so you don't know what people look like. So... Uh, he then goes, it seems like something didn't go perfectly. Um, I, I think that's the best read on what happens. He goes in and maybe the disciples thought, the followers of Jesus thought that they were going to be able to actually start the, uh, the new age, the messianic age and overthrow the Romans because people were getting pretty excited about this. When Jesus was coming in, they were shouting, Hosanna, Hosanna. You so know? how many disciples did Jesus have? Uh, well, Jesus had 12. Why do you think that's important? Well, there was the 12 tribes of Israel. Right, right. So why is that important? Well, because that was also the way of against the kings mm. and being like, t- like when, if Jesus saying. is gone, then, then there's not just one person in charge of telling the whole story of yeah. what Jesus is all about. There's it's 12. Like a council. Yeah. It's a council of people. Ooh, that's very good. That's much more anarchist than, and then having your one dictator. I like that. Yeah. That's really good. Um, and so they're all hanging out though. And so what's really fascinating is, so Jesus, Jesus goes in, he stages this political demonstration. He, he makes his point, but I'm sure like the guards are coming in and there's some threats to his own safety and they're not able to stir up a a revolution, whatever that revolution would be. And I think that's the real question. Was Jesus interested in perhaps some kind of moderately violent revolution? Was it a completely non-violent revolution? But ultimately Jesus then... Um, he, he flees and he goes to the garden of Gethsemane. Now, this is really interesting because the way we grew up, Stacy, hearing it was Jesus is in the garden of Gethsemane and God really needs to kill Jesus right. so that he doesn't have to kill me and you. Right. right. So like God, because we're bad, God needs to send us to hell for all eternity, but we don't have to go to hell as long as he can kill his son on our behalf and then he'll be satisfied. Right. And That's then, what I heard. And, and, and Jesus is basically praying, you know, let this cup yeah. pass from me. Like I'd prefer not this plan, sir. Right. If there's another plan, <laughs> please, you know, right. give me that. Now, if you want to take this in a different, uh, take this from a different angle, there's also this other way of seeing it. And that is that Jesus knows that he's got to make a decision. Is he going to stand there? Is he going to be this political leader? Does he have the strength of character, the courage to go face what is surely going to be a painful death as a martyr, as a figure of liberation? Um, Or is he going to flee back to Galilee? I think that seems to be what's going on. And, uh, and this is also when he says to the disciples, all right, grab yourself, whatever you're doing, get yourself a little sword and, and, we're going to go regroup. And it seems like it's possible. He's saying, Hey, we're going to go regroup. So it's possible that Jesus wasn't even a, uh, a completely nonviolent guy, but it does seem to be the case that he wasn't trying to, um, he wasn't trying to stage a military 
Yang versus Yang opposition. What Jesus does throughout his, his ministry is he teaches ways for people to subvert the government in creative and humorous ways. That's, you know, turn the other cheek, th- that sort of thing. It's not just being passive. It's being an active resistor to the empire and to the oppression. But you, you can't do it by bringing your army against theirs because their army's bigger. Right. So it's practical. But so it's interesting. There are various the, interpretations, but he tells his disciples to grab a sword and, and, and make, make a run for it. There's the, and there's the coins, right? Give unto Caesar what is Caesar's. Well, we should definitely talk about this. So one of the things they try to do is they're trying to trap him while he's in Jerusalem into saying something that's going to get him in trouble. Um, and uh, the thing that would get him in the most trouble is if he's asked about taxes, paying taxes, that's a lose-lose situation. If he says you should pay the taxes, then he's supporting the collaborators and the compromisers and, and the, the wicked system. The system. If he says don't pay your taxes, they're going to arrest them. Right. Um, and ultimately what he says is, you guys are missing the point. The very fact, he says, give me a coin, show me the coin, and what's who's the face on there? That's their idol. The idol is on the coin. And you as a good Jewish kid, no, you're not supposed to have a graven image. You're not supposed to have the image of a, of a king, certainly a Caesar who calls himself a god. So you're not allowed to have that in the first place. So give that idol back to the god that you got it from. In other words... Some people think that when, when, when Jesus says, give unto Caesar the things that are Caesar's, he's saying we should allow the government to operate. And I think what it's really saying is relativize it. Don't take it seriously. Don't be a part of it. Opt out of it. Don't be a part of the system. It only has the value that we assign to it. Right. Uh, but not only does it have that value, once we assign it, we're also entering into that system and we're selling our souls to the system yeah. by just by being a part of it. Now, how to apply that now? You, you really can't. It's really difficult for us to just exist. Without. It's impossible for us to exist without some form of money and being part of the system. But that's his point, that, the, that there's like a deeper radical nature to the problem. Now, this is something then that we go to that's, that, that's really interesting. Jesus comes in, he's arrested at night. And so because he's arrested at night, there isn't a way for him to get the, the friends and family out to support him. And there are various interesting interpretations. I don't have time to discuss them all. I'll probably talk about it some other time. Uh, but it, it seems that uh, there was this moment where Pilate, it's a very odd thing. Pilate says, I'm going to release one of the prisoners. Mm-hmm. Now, I think it's historically accurate for reasons I can't get into, but it's possible that the idea was you were going to release the prisoner and then stone him. In other words, it's, it's possible that the idea was that the government was going to crucify these political, uh, these political prisoners, but that it would be better if the, if the Jewish people did it themselves. Mm. So the, the preferred method of execution amongst the Jews was stoning. And of course, the, the penalty for the Romans, if you're a political prisoner, a per- political activist, was crucifixion because it was making a point to everybody. Right. Well, and it, it make, I mean, anybody that saw it would see Handmaid's Tale, mm-hmm. right? They try mm-hmm. to get the, the handmaids to be the one throwing the stone yes. at the person right. that is, um, you know, needs to be stoned or whatever, getting them all on board with the punishment. I'm not adamant about that, but that's a possibility because it doesn't matter whether or not these people are going to be released. mob mentality. There. Yes. 
and to stir up that mob mentality, interestingly, on behalf of the government. Yes. Right? Now, so there's this scene, which is, I think, historically accurate, but very hard to interpret. There's two dudes that he says he's got that he's holding. And as his custom, he's going to release one of them. He's going to release one political prisoner. You see, it wouldn't make sense for him to release a murderer, like, right. a, like a mass murderer or just a thief or something. It does make sense for governments to say, all right, I'm going to give you back one of your Taliban leaders. Mm-hmm. In ex- you know, there's, like, there's these things that sometimes will happen. Jesus Barabbas might have been a guy who was kind of doing terrorist activities. And Jesus was saying, I'm not doing terrorist activities. I'm having protests that are in public but are nonviolent. You know, so well, and, and it, it, yeah, it would be so Jesus Barabbas doing the work of the Father, whoever the Father might be, and let's Jesus, say it's the Father God, sure, yeah. and then Jesus, the Son of Man, would He's be this eschatological figure doing it on behalf of the people, mm-hmm. not some father, not some authority, other other authority figure. Right. Uh, oh, yeah. Interesting. Right. Right. That's also very interesting. So in any case, Barabbas's friends are there. And so they advocate for him. And Jesus' friends aren't there. So this is another reason why there's a lot of, uh, there's a lot of anti-Semitism as it comes to these accounts where it, some people take it as the Jews wanted Jesus of Nazareth dead. And that's, that's not the case. What it is, is there are some people that are, it's kind of like they're voting for this one guy to save his life. They're going to vote for that guy and say, no, no, I don't want the other guy. It's not the Jews killed Jesus. It just, this is the political thing that's going on at this time. Uh, in any case, Jesus, of course, does get crucified. So this again is really important, but where does he get crucified? Jesus gets crucified between two criminals, but what kind of criminals are they? They are uh, from from the language, they are these brigands, but really they're 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 seen as terrorists. So Jesus is clearly in the first century. The original story you can see be, behind the text even is a political one. He's a political threat to Rome, even if he's a mild one. Even if they don't even understand what he's doing, they're going to take him out. And then what happens? You go the church. The church has to form in the in the in the tradition of this Jesus. And what do they do instantly? They become socialists. (laughs) They become basically libertarian socialists. They're anarchists. The church in Acts 2, they sell everything that they've got and they share everything. They create um, essentially an anarchist commune um, where it's collectivist. I don't know why. It's so obviously the case in Acts 2 that they are living this way. And that all of my Christian friends growing up assumed that capitalism was God's way. Well, and (laughs) it's such a different story. So many times, like when people are hearing the message of Jesus, they sell everything and follow him. Yeah, that's that's the idea. You you drop it and then you go to this other thing. Now, why do you have to do it? Because it's not just being nice. This is mutual aid. There's a very important anarchist principle. The only way we can escape the system is if we create an alternative system. We have to be able to sustain ourselves and our families. The reason you give money to the poor, and we think that the early Christian community was poor. Um, this is related to the early uh, Jewish Christian community known as the Ebionites. That literally, they're called the poor. And I think that they're poor because they have to take themselves out of certain Uh, positions that rely on exploitation. So you can't be part of the tax system. 
You can't be a soldier persecuting people and killing people. You, you know, there's all these jobs that are now off limits to you and you're poor mm-hmm. and you're also going to be excluded for your beliefs. So you have to support each other again, not because of charity, but because of solidarity and you're standing up against everything else. Now we keep going. The, the most important person in the early church is a person that we've ignored in, in Protestantism, especially since uh, Martin Luther said, Um, that his epistle was an epistle of straw, but it's the book of James. One of the things that you'll notice when you reread James is the whole thing is about support for the poor. It says, what is real religion? Caring for orphans and widows. That's what it is. And if you neglect the poor, then your faith is useless and it's dead. Mm. And I used to see that when I was growing up as a problem like, God loves me and I'm forgiven and I can be, God loves me and, and no matter what I do, and then I saw you this thing in, in James where it says, my faith is useless if I don't have works. And I think that good works is not masturbating, not drinking, going to church. That's good works. Mm-hmm. What he's saying is, no, good works is taking care of the orphans and widows. In other words, you can't call yourself a Christian if you ignore refugees and uh and, and abusive relationships, uh, domestic abuse. These it's sorts in of you. It, it's like you... It goes deeper. So it's not about, you know, what work am I going to do or, you know, or trying to prove something or a certain level of faith. It's just that you're going to see the suffering of people and you're going to want to do something about it. Because you see them as part of the same family. Right. And you also see things in a non-hierarchical way. So it's not acceptable to you to see people suffering, uh, being crushed. And Jesus, of course, in his teaching says, the last shall be first and the first shall be last. The meek will inherit the earth. Blessed are the poor. So, I mean, this is the whole story. Blessed are the poor. His message is to the poor. He comes to bring liberation to the poor. And for some reason, very quickly after Jesus is on the scene, the powers that be co-opt his movement and they use this guy, they use this name, Jesus, and they use the images of his execution to justify continued persecution. I'm almost done with the Bible. What's the last book of the Bible? The book of Revelation, the apocalypse of John. And a lot of the time we get, you know, especially in America, we get all caught up in, in the question, who is the beast? What is the mark of the beast? Well, the mark of the beast, the number of the beast, 666, is Nero. It's almost certainly the case that Nero is what's being referred to. Nero, either as an individual literally being at- uh, attacked in this, or as a figure, Nero as a figure of the persecuting empire over the Christians. And the idea is you cannot be a part of it. So when we were growing up, I was always worried that barcodes were the mark of the beast, <laughs> or credit cards were the mark of the beast. And and interestingly, I wish in a way I would have taken that more seriously, but more politically and economically mm. that what I think is going on in the, in the book of Revelation is this idea that, that the people of God need to not be caught up in the beast of Babylon, which is Rome, which is this Roman system. If, you ca- if you're caught up in it, you will be sucked into it and it will destroy your soul. In very practical ways. And so we tend to see this, oh, it's the end of the world is coming. No, in many ways, I think also the book of Revelation is a a text that should be inspiring to Christian anarchists in that in many ways, what I think it's saying is not only is another world possible, but we are a movement that has hope that that world is going to be. A world where there isn't violence, 
where the lion lays down with the lamb, where there are no more tears. It, this is not like a pie in the sky. This is a, a, a world where there is not a system of, of violence, right. that there is mutual love. Right. And, uh, and is it possible? It may not be. Everything I'm talking about, the Bible may be wrong. Maybe we should have dictators. But I can guarantee you the way I'm reading the Bible, I think is very plausible and that it's this main trajectory of rejecting the beast and trying to create an alternative system, which has a, a socialist feel to it. Socialist, not in the statist sense, and in fact, not statist at all, but socialist in the sense that we take care of old people, women that don't have means of support, orphans, children. Mutual aid. Mutual aid. And, um, and we take it seriously. It's not a side issue. Um, all right. Now, the biggest problem for all of these um, really interesting things that I see in the Bible related to the rejection of statism is Romans 13. Romans 13 is, um, is a text from Paul where basically, to summarize it, you can, you could look it up, uh, but basically he says, you should obey the government because the, the government always just basically um, punishes bad people, right? Now, it is a terribly problematic text for Christian anarchists, no doubt. It's interesting that it's, it's one of the only ones that kind of comes at it in that way. And yet that's the one that people that love governments and states and things and hierarchy, they point to that. Mm-hmm. Um, and there are other places where, you know, Paul says, women obey your husbands, slaves obey your, your leaders. All I can say is that I believe that uh, there is a way in which I could read Paul, and I prefer to read Paul in this way, that he would say, women obey your husbands because obviously Christianity uh, is implying egalitarianism because he says in, in Galatians, there's neither male nor female, slave nor free, Greek nor Jew. So he el- eliminates these uh, stratifications. He eliminates the hierarchy in theory, but then he says, you're going to stay with it. And all I can say is I believe that Paul might say this um, for the same reason I would say, if, if you're going to go uh, to Saudi Arabia as a woman Go ahead and wear traditional clothing so that you're not offensive. Not because I think that you should wear that, but because it's disruptive. <laughs> yeah, I mean, like you, you can't go in there. Like whether it's business or you're even like, a, let's say you're doing, um, you're an aid worker. You're trying to help young women um, in, in a country that has a certain dress code. Right. You can wear that dress code so that you don't disrupt the organization's not movement. You're not, not yet. You're not being distracting but the trajectory is freedom, right? I mean, and, then, and if you're if they are distracted by something like that, then you're not going to be able to do the true work at hand that you're there to do. Yes. Now, I think the other thing that's important about Romans 13 is that I think what's going on is that around the same time, there are Christians that side with uh, the zealots, and the zealots were the more violent revolutionaries. So I think the number one question for Jesus anarchists is, should we be... Uh, pacifist like Martin Luther King Jr. Or are there times when it would be appropriate to be a part of some kind of revolutionary action that uses violence? I tend to side with the nonviolent approach, though I believe in the right to bear arms for my self-protection against things, right? right? But I don't think you're going to accomplish something by a violent revolution. It's shown over and over that it backfires. Yeah. But 
I think the fact that so many people realized that Christianity opposed the Roman Empire, when Paul's writing to the Roman Christians, he's saying, be cool. Be cool. Don't. It's kind of like um, it would be kind of like in an age right after nine eleven. If you were an imam, you're saying, "Hey, everybody, don't talk about violence in 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 our conversations as Muslims in America. That's not helpful, right?" Uh, regardless, going back to what I said about inerrancy, one of the problems is you've got some texts that are really anti-government, and some texts that seem to maybe be saying you should support government and you should obey government. What do you do in those contexts? Well, you have a little bit of freedom. You hold it loosely. Inerrantists have to cram things together in a very um, uh, rigid way, and it, and it doesn't fit. It's very hard to make some of these things fit if you're an inerrantist where you're saying everything that Paul says is 100% unchangeable and accurate. You know, is it possible that Paul appreciated the rights of women at a theological level? but was kind of just grossed out by women being too talkative or he was grossed out by two men making out. And the question is, what do we have to do with that? Mm -hmm. If Paul is uncomfortable with two men kissing, does that mean God is too? Mm -hmm. And I think, um, and I think that's really, again, that's the rub. When you think about whether or not you would be somebody who follows Jesus, listens to the Bible, the question is how, right? Now, so that's kind of like the story. I was talking about the story that you see, the narrative in the Bible from Genesis to the book of Revelation. But you would then say, all right, but there are some anti-authoritarian themes, anti-Caesar, right? Anti-dictator. But what about within the church? Should there be hierarchies within the church? And I think that if you think, you know, just hierarchies or rulership or overlordship, uh, anarchy just means no, we don't have that. We don't have princes. We don't have, you know, uh, even church leaders that are above us. And this is where he's very explicit. I only got one more verse for you to read, Sydney. Matthew 20, starting with verse 25. But Jesus called them to him and said, you know that the rulers of the Gentiles lord it over them and their great ones are tyrants over them. It will not be so among you. But whoever wishes to be great among you must be your servant, and whoever wishes to be first among you must be your slave, just as the Son of Man came not to be served, but to serve and to give his life a ransom for many. So the, the term there is rulers. It's archontes. That's archontes. So anarchy is a rejection of the archontes. So he says, you know that these other people groups have archontes, archons, that uh, lord it over them, and you're not supposed to do that. So if, if, if anybody asks, what's the kind of the proof text, I would say this is so explicit, I don't really even need to defend it anymore to say, you don't have to believe in the teachings of Jesus, but if you believe in the teachings of Jesus, and you believe that Matthew 20 accurately reflects the teachings of Jesus, then you can't be a big fan of the, uh, you know, of the system of hierarchy and say that you're a follower of Jesus. Now, just to kind of pull aside from this for a second so we can illustrate how upsetting it is that Jesus would be, be become a, a mascot for power, glory, and money, uh, I want to turn to the story of, of Medusa. Now, we haven't done our, our background prep, but let's just kind of brainstorm here. 
the, the story as we remember, like the kind of the myth of Medusa. So Medusa, if you look her in the eyes, she turns you into stone. And then she has like the snake hair. And then if you cut off the snake hair, like more snakes come out of the hair. But she got there because what happened to Medusa that got her? She was, she was coerced into a sexual relationship with a god. And then a goddess got jealous of uh, that. Was that's it right. Hera and Zeus? I just or is I that, think so. Yeah, no, that is right. Yeah, so Hera, even though Zeus was always cheating on Hera all the time, she would like get mad at the women instead of him. And so she would do something fucked up to um, like whoever slept with Zeus, basically. Right. So she gave her this kind of curse. And so now she's depressed. <laughs> she's She is... Raped. She, she's been, she's been, yeah, <clears throat> she's been raped. Now she's been made to be and then a criti- double victim. Uh, yeah. And then criticized for that. And, and so then you just, you start to get fr- so frustrated with the world, right? That, and the hurt and the pain. It's interesting and so that just, Hera's like, whatever Zeus, but fuck that bitch. <laughs> yeah. yeah. Like, no, stop blaming other women, women. Yeah. <laughs> and then blaming them for being angry. Smile more, kid. Yeah. You know, uh, look pretty, you know. So here's this woman who has been harmed, and then she's seen as a monster because she is now, she is now um, bringing this pain out in, into the rest of, of her relationships. And in many ways, I think it's an interesting image because it's something that we can do if we're not careful in our grief. So when crappy things happen to us, we can ask, well, what am I going to do with this crappy feeling? It's, it's very hard to juggle the sadness that we feel in our own hearts with our, our desire and call to love other people. Um, but in any case, it's very also understandable. Uh, you know, I think our grief has helped me to have compassion on people that uh, I might meet at the store and are angry. For instance, there is a, a, a woman who runs a, a small convenience store down the road. And the first time I met her, I thought she was a little bit... Uh, short with me, a little bit um, not friendly. And then later, I could be wrong, I came to hear, I think, from the way she was talking, that her husband had recently died. Mm-hmm. Well, if that's true, let's just say it's true, then she is in a really painful spot. Yeah. And here's some dude that just barging in and, you know, whatever, and I'm, I'm asking questions about the, the meat, and, well, the meat's not ready because her husband's the butcher, and it's obviously not there, right? Sure. Right. So, um, so... Medusa and all human beings that are seen as problematic because they've suffered and then they're, they're given off this other energy, um, th- they definitely are, are worthy of our compassion. Right. But then she gets her head cut off and then this head becomes a weapon. So her rage is weaponized by a dude. And ultimately, then you have Medusa on a, Medusa's head on a shield Right. And, and when I think of that, that again is where I was going with this idea of the, the Roman government after Constantine, right? The Romans having a cross, the cross that the Romans used to kill this prophet is now the symbol of their power. Mm. It is the symbol that will be used to torture to death heretics during the inquisition it's the symbol that's going to be used during the crusades as european christians go and 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 slaughter uh, jews and muslims in the holy land it's the same cross that's going to be used to subjugate indigenous people in the in the united states or in the in north america the point being 
there is um, all of this atrocity committed in the name of somebody who was opposing those atrocities. And that's also how it was with Medusa. <laughs> it's, mm-hmm. it's, a, it's a thing that happens over and over. So that's the story as I see it from the Bible. But before we end, I just want to just mention a couple places for people to look if they want to know more about Christian anarchists in the more modern context, right? And the first is Jacques Ellul. Uh, Jacques Ellul's work on Christian anarchism is is very important. And I think people who want to reevaluate the Bible in light of these themes will find his work on Christian anarchism very helpful. He had been part of the the French underground during uh, the Nazi uh, Vichy regime. Um, And he was what we call an anarcho-syndicalist. There's a lot of different kinds of anarchy, but it basically you've got federations of workers uh, kind of having direct democracy in their local contexts. But he wasn't very optimistic about the possibility of a successful revolution because he had seen attempts at this um, and he saw how badly things went with the Bolsheviks uh, in the in the Soviet uh, context. So he he's kind of more of a theoretical Christian anarchist, though he does have those leanings. Uh, he tried to get into a group called the Situationists. Uh, situationism is very interesting because they would use cool pop art, um, the sort of thing that you see around Portland here, to kind of make fun of the capitalist system. I, I do like it. But they wouldn't let Jacques Ellul join them because he claimed to, to be a Christian. And there are a lot of anarchists who say, no, you cannot be um, you cannot be a Christian, you cannot be a believer in God and an anarchist. And of course, Jacques Ellul said that you could. Um, Stacy, would you read this quotation from Jacques Ellul just to kind of get a little bit of a flavor about you know, what he was about? Adherence to the Christian faith is not in any sense a privilege in relation to other people, but an additional commission, a responsibility, a new work. So in other words, he's saying sometimes in Europe or especially in America, you say, oh, I'm a Christian. That means I'm saved and they're lost. I'm the good guys. They're the bad guys. I'm in the in crowd. They're the out crowd. What the the Christian anarchist is saying is Christianity isn't something you join so that you can be saved from hell Mm -hmm. in the the sense of going to hell after life, but you're saved from a world of a living hell. You're pulled out of a, of a system that is an unhealthy system. And you're, uh, you're now in a new system. And what is that system? This new experience of Christianity is simply a group of people that gather together to remind ourselves that we're supposed to go and care for one another, that we're supposed to do the mutual aid work. And, and, um, and therefore it's a responsibility. It's a, it's a way of kind of claiming, um, almost like if you thought about becoming a monk or something, you're, you're claiming a certain kind of calling to care for the least, the last, the lost, the orphans, the widows, and the refugees. You're being commissioned. Right. Next quote. Christian faith does not bring us into a world of duty and obligation, but into a life of freedom. So it's not done in a way that you say, you're in trouble if you don't serve the churches or the religious group in this way or that. It is like jazz. It's a place to flourish and to be free. Now, do we see this anywhere? I am right now not interested in even trying. I am going to take a little breather from going to what we call churches uh, in the traditional sense. But you, you, we do need community. We do need a spiritual community, and we are going to continue to pursue that. In any case, there are also other types of anarchists, of course. And so that's why we like this idea of Jesus anarchy, not even so that you have to believe in anything in particular, but it's a, it's a way of framing it. It's a more spiritual, more activist 
kind of uh, uh, nonviolent anarchism. Um, he writes in another place, violence is the confession that there is no other course of action and no reason to hope. So what Alul saying is Christianity saying that there is another world possible that we can create in hope um, is what makes it so that we don't have to be nihilistic and violent uh, revolutionaries. He asks at one point, should anarchists vote? And he says, no, um, because it, it justifies a system. It makes us think that we're being represented by even um, you know, progressive government officials. But the anarchist is basically saying, no, it's not that there's no order. It's that, that we're not going to let somebody else make our decisions for us. There's not going to be a class of people called politicians. We're going to make decisions together in hopefully consensus, but in a direct democratic context. Um, one of the things that is tricky, though, is the question of public education. As a libertarian socialist, I want us as a society to take care of all kids, but I'm not interested in teaching in the public schools. So I'm going to be teaching in an alternative school that's progressive, but um, I am interested in helping find ways to get grant money and, and aid money so that we can help all students have a, 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 an education where they can flourish. Public education that's, that's run by the state is seen as potentially problematic by Christian anarchists, mm -hmm. by anarchists in, generals, um, in general. But anarchists have typically very much been interested in working towards reform of education so that it's, it's not based on fear of punishment and hope of reward, grades, uh, all these assessments, but it's, you know, uh, it's something that, that, that allows them to find a place to flourish. Well, and you, I mean, to have access to information, to be able to read and write are important for your continued ability to have access to information. So you, anybody that can't read or write, right, is definitely, we, as we mentioned, there's that van life person that came up in front, right? And he right. was the welder and he couldn't pass the test because he didn't know how to read. Yeah. Yeah, so, I mean, that's a, a, piece a of it. huge limitation. Um, so it's important that everybody know how to read and write, learn things, but not necessarily maybe um, within a certain system that is going to expect you to sort of believe or, you know what I mean, see things a certain way. Like, in other words, being able to kind of go and explore different worldviews, different ideas and things like that, I think, enriches the education environment rather than saying there's only one way to see this. Yeah. So in any case, you could look at a variety of ways that Jesus anarchists would apply this, but generally uh, Jesus anarchists are not violent and they're not revolutionary in that sense. Uh, but if you want to see really all of this, how it plays out with all the theorists, uh, there's a book uh, that's relatively recent, Alexandra, um, Alexander Christianopolis, and the book is called Christian Anarchism. He's going to just kind of go through all of the different theorists and how they read the Gospels and how they read Romans 13. Uh, but basically, he just is going to say it's anti-clerical. That means it's, it's Christian anarchy is against uh, church hierarchy positions. It's pacifist. It emphasizes Jesus over Paul. Um, and uh, it, it still believes that you shouldn't have gods and masters if that means... God and your masters are dominating you and, and coercing you and controlling you. You can wrestle with God. You can have a relationship with the divine, but it's not like this power that's over you. 
Uh, and then uh, one last thing. Some people would say, hey, if, if I'm looking for a, a good you know, Christian anarchist to read, uh, you certainly could look at Werner uh, Eller, who came from Everett, Washington. But he, I think he's such, um, he, he's such a pacifist, uh, but he's very much a quietist. He's not very much interested in activism. And so I, I don't find that as compelling myself. A lot of people look to Tolstoy. Definitely, if you want to get a, a very foundational Christian anarchist writer, it's Leo Tolstoy in his book, The Kingdom of God is Within You. Um, Stacy, would you read that last quote from Tolstoy? Yes. Uh, by swearing an oath of allegiance to the state, one becomes a tool of the state. And as the state's tool, one will be forced to betray Christ. So this is, this is where Tolstoy is basically saying, you cannot, you cannot be a follower of Jesus and be part of the system. You essentially can't be a follower of Jesus and be a soldier or a cop. And not because those people are inherently bad people, but because to be living out the Christian life and to beat poor people in his context, in like, you know, czarist Russia, um, who were just trying to find a way to make ends meet as peasants is, is impossible. It's incompatible to be a Christian and to be a part of this violent, oppressive structure. So that's another one that you might want to read, the Tolstoy. But the main thing is that, um, you know, when we look at these terms like anarchism and Christianity, we have to let them define themselves, or we have to let the communities define them themselves. So you're, you know, dear listener, you can call yourself what you want, and I'll, I'll take that for what it is. Um, but uh, what we are interested in here is not being confined by a certain institution or, uh, you know, set of uh, in intellectual police, but rather to say, is there something transformative and freeing in the words of Jesus? I think there is um, a lot to be said there about rejecting that hierarchy, that overlordship, uh, the archons. And um, it's interesting that the early church got this. They lose that message after Constantine makes Christianity something that's part of the the imperial uh, elite, uh, or you know he is himself, of course, part of the imperial elite. He's the he's the head head honcho, and by doing this, all of a sudden, Christians got excited that they got to have power. They got to be in the halls of power. Bishops that used to be persecuted under Diocletian now get to go to big parties at the Capitol. Mm -hmm. And that's attractive. That's addictive. And that's been the story ever since. Christians have been told by Jesus to care about the least, the last, and the lost, and the poor. And yet we keep getting seduced into this other thing. Happened again with Charlemagne. And it definitely happened in the 20th century when Americans kind of had business interests taking over uh, the, the main message of the church. That's where I'm coming from. And uh, that's kind of what um, I think I can leave now aside. And you can, you know, people can come back and listen to this because now what I'm interested in is what do we do? How do we go forward? You know, what, what do we do? That's, that's what I think is, is compelling me. It is not because I'm rejecting Jesus that I'm moving in the directions that I'm moving. It's precisely because now I'm emboldened. I'm, um, I'm thinking it's time for me to take it seriously because it is a radical message. Well, and I mean, if you think of even the way that a lot of churches are designed, it's so that what the pastor is up front, or the church leaders are up front, 
the people come and look at it, it. It does resemble in a lot of ways the structure of the king. Yeah. You know, that, that sort of format, you know, the, the, the pastor above the people. In churches we've been in. Right. That's what I said. And there's also, there are also other traditions like the Anabaptist radical reformation traditions that intentionally would sit in circles mm-hmm. and not have somebody wearing a special robe that was the priest or the, the head, head honcho. And those groups were violently persecuted by Catholics Calvinists and Lutherans, interestingly, because they were seen as a great threat. Well, and it's interesting because as you've taught in your classes that, I mean, even take a look at your place of worship, if you do worship somewhere, the the design of it, how everything is laid out, what rituals they do or don't adhere to. Is there an American flag up front? It all matters. Yeah. Do they make you feel bad for playing soccer with your kids on a Saturday? (laughs) That's a, a deep one. Yeah. So... You know, all of these things are, are, are pieces to consider. And even, you know, what I mean, there's, you know, I don't know, there's because there's a lot of things even to like what an arthex is and opening up into almost like a like a womb. Right. Mm. As you're walking in. And, and I don't know. So there's a lot of th- uh, things that are said just from, again, the way that your building is created and the structures of your church. So pay attention to it. What does that say? What does it say about their beliefs? And what does it say that sometimes we think that the church is is the building? I mean, we don't yeah. say that explicitly, but it's kind of uh, the way we think about it. Or a building or a group of buildings or an organization that organizes a group of buildings. I, I just, I can't see that being the game. Certainly not in the Bible itself. Like that there's these organizations that have, you know, tax status and stuff. You know, it's a different kind of thing. Well, thank you everybody uh, for... Uh, making it here to the end if that is where you're at and a lot of content yeah we'll see we'll see you soon so in the meantime peace upon peace uh, thank you so much friends for joining us for this episode of the protect your noggin podcast you want to join in on the conversation we'd love to respond to your questions or comments on a future show you can record a message by going to protectyournoggin.org and clicking on the blue voice message button. And don't worry about getting it perfect since you'll have five minutes and a chance to preview your message before sending. You can also send an email if you're not comfortable with leaving a voice message. Please also follow us on Twitter at the PYNP and rate and review us on iTunes or wherever you get your podcasts. And if you found this show of any help, uh, why not share it with a friend? Until next time, peace upon peace, friends. But he said there wasn't any letter. He said I was going out of my mind. Not going out of your mind. You're slowly and systematically being driven out of your mind. Why? Why? That's because you found this letter low too much.